Under the Tartan Sky, episode 39, produced 18 April 2017. Easily, the question I'm asked most often when talking with someone about Scotland is, when I'm there, what must I see? Well, it's not an easy question to answer because there is so much to see. Beyond just the striking natural beauty, Scotland offers a wealth of sights to entertain and educate the tourist. These range from museums and galleries to world heritage sites, from spirits distilleries to pristine golf courses. And of course, there are castles, and castles, and more castles. I'm Glenn Moyer, and we can't visit all of them, but we'll talk about several, Scottish castles that is, when we return to chat with one who has adopted Scotland as his own. He is the Castle Hunter, here under the Tartan Sky. History, heritage, archaeology. In 2017, Scotland invites you to peer into the mists. Scotland's history is a long and rich one, filled with stories of legends and myths. Its heritage can be found in fields of standing stones and the ruins of castles that once were clan strongholds. Through the science of archaeology, new discoveries of ruins and artefacts are continuously being made that often reveal tantalising new clues to stories yet untold. In 2017, more than 50 events are planned to build around nine major festivals, as Scotland invites visitors and locals alike to come face to face with the past. Great legends have been made throughout Scotland's history. What story will you write when you visit Scotland in the year of history, heritage and archaeology? Scotland may not have the most castles of any country in the world, that honour allegedly falls to neighbouring Wales. But depending on how you define castle, Scotland has between 1,500 and, oh, 4,000 or so. Some, like Edinburgh Castle, Stirling Castle and Eileen Donan, are among Scotland's top visitor attractions. Others perhaps are less well known, but no less steeped in history. Some have been lovingly and near completely restored, while others, like Denoder, Dune, and Urquhart, are basically restored ruin, leaving us to only imagine what grandeur and majesty may once have been found within those walls. If Scottish castles strike your fancy, then allow me to introduce David Weinsock, a.k.a. the Castle Hunter. Canadian by birth, but also holding German citizenship, Weinsock likes to say he is Scottish by choice. I'll let him explain that. As the castle hunter on Twitter, Periscope, and Instagram, Weinzock is a freelance heritage professional. He is part of the Scotlanders blogging team. He is one of three presenters on the Scottish archaeology-oriented YouTube channel Digit TV. And most recently, he began offering intimate walking tours of Scotland's capital city of Edinburgh. He blogs on behalf of organizations such as Historic Environment Scotland and the Society of Antiquaries of Scotland. Weinzock is one of the most popular history-oriented broadcasters in all of Britain on the Periscope app. He is a self-confessed Game of Thrones geek, wherein he sees many connections to Scottish history and heritage. 
In his spare time, he's out and about exploring Scotland's castles, more than 200 so far. Oh, and he's also working on a book about Scottish castles. So if you want to know about Scottish castles, you can do far worse than to stop and chat, as I did, with David Weinzock, the castle hunter. I asked David just how and when this fascination with Scotland and castles took hold of his life. Ever since I was very, very young, for whatever reason, I developed an affinity quite quickly for history and fantasy and the like. Um, now, being in the suburbs of Toronto, there wasn't too many opportunities to sort of pursue that. Um, so I read as many books as I could, you know, played video games that related to historical scenarios. And, uh, you know, so full confession, when I was around probably eight or nine, too young to be watching Braveheart, but somehow I got away with it and was able to sneak a viewing. <laughs> uh, and I think from then on, I was hooked. Now, now, ever since, I have, of course, learned that, you know, that film is not exactly what you'd call a, a documentary in terms of historical accuracy. Yeah, it's certainly not a historical uh, document, is it? No, no, but but it, it set the hook, you know, and uh, and that's a good thing. So I think ever since then, I've had this... Uh, creeping affinity for Scotland, um, which goes along with uh, this affinity again for for the underdog. I think in historical terms, which Scotland certainly you know has been for much of its history. Uh, so I studied politics and international relations in university, uh, both at a university outside of uh, Toronto, York University there, um, and here at the University of Edinburgh, which is what. Uh, the stepping stone was for me coming over to Scotland in the first instance. Um, but I was always looking at politics and international relations and political theory through a, a historical lens and through a very critical lens and asking myself, you know, how history and political events play off each other, you know, how, how they're part of the same package, what the connections are. Um, so even now I like to explore those avenues when I'm looking at history. Um, but when I got the chance to study at the University of Edinburgh, I thought, well, I've been wanting to live in Scotland ever since I was a kid. This is it. This is my chance. <laughs> um, so with no connections over here, no family in Scotland, I've got some relatives uh, not far from London, uh, but that's it. I made the move that was in fall 2011 uh, and haven't really looked back since. I mean, I'll always, uh, you know, love Canada, especially the East Coast. Uh, but the the density of the history here and everything has just got me completely hooked. Um, so ever since then, I've just been on a, a big old geek out, getting myself involved in uh, whatever I can when it comes to Scottish heritage, whether it's, you know, working with the heritage organizations here to promote their sites, um, just reading up on cool stories. I've just recently started working as a tour guide in Edinburgh, so I've had to read up on a lot of the local stories and local history. Um, I, I've just got a hunger for it. I think that's the main thing that that's driven me, and that I guess you could say sort of defines me well, in that sense. And in light of your your interest in politics through the eyes of history, these must be exciting times for you in the UK. Incredibly, yeah, yeah. Um, momentous, certainly disruptive. Um, and for myself, it, it's very interesting because I'm here on an EU passport. I mean, uh, Canada is Commonwealth, so it does have some advantages in that sense, you know, in the fall of Brexit. Um, but I am a German citizen as well, actually, through my father's side. Um, and that's what's allowed me to stay in Scotland in the first place. So, uh, yeah, it, it's been an interesting last couple of years, even since the uh, Scottish independence referendum. Uh -huh. um, so, uh, and I, I am, you know, of, of the position that it's not taboo for people um, who are professionals to have a say uh, in those things, as long as they're doing it from an inf uh, informed platform like anybody else. And I agree, and, and I certainly have a position on it, and I think you and I probably share the same position. And it was 
Interesting because I had a conversation with a uh, a Twitter friend just the other day. We were on opposite sides of the independence question and did not like a tweet that I had made um, and said, you know, that that uh, they had unfriended people or unfollowed people because of that and hoped we wouldn't lose our friendship over it. And I said, well, I do too, but I, I, I think it's fair for people to have, and we're off on a tangent here, but I think it's fair and rightful that people should have opposing opinions. And I think you need people with opposing opinions in your life because if you're only surrounded with people who believe and see as you do, you're going to have a very tunnel vision view of the world. Absolutely. You've got to break out of that bubble. Yeah. And, and I liked what uh, I heard Nicola Sturgeon say just the other day in her comments about Brexit being triggered. And she said, you know, debate is healthy. And we have to remember that the, the people on the other side of the debate are not our enemies, but they are simply people who have a very passionate viewpoint that is different from our own. And they deserve to be heard as much as we do. And so it, it kind of pained me when my friend suggested that because we were on opposite sides of the independence issue, that if I was too vociferous in expressing my opinion, you know, our friendship would be in danger. I, I was very mm-hmm. taken aback by that. It's a shame when it comes to that, certainly. And one of the things that I do admire about Scotland in, in general terms is that there is a very healthy environment of debate here um, in the sense that for the most part, I mean, you, you, you get idiots everywhere. <laughs> you, know, you know how it is, you know, people who are overly aggressive, overly assertive, that happens everywhere. But for the most part, um, people here do encourage you know, this speaking your mind. And if there is a conflicting opinion, then you talk it out, usually over a pint somewhere. Um, so that sense of dialogue, I think, is something that goes back in Scottish history quite far. I mean, in Edinburgh itself, it's the city of the Enlightenment. And one of the real hotbeds for the Enlightenment was the various coffee houses uh, that, was, that were established in Edinburgh in the uh, late 17th, 18th centuries. And that got people talking out in public places. And I think, uh, you know, as long as you can keep that alive, as long as we don't shut ourselves down entirely to other people's points of view um, or to the, the possibility of dialogue and coming to a compromise or coming to an understanding, uh, then then we're OK. You know, it's when we shut that down that we're really in trouble. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. I, I think you've answered this question because you mentioned that it was your studies who, that brought you from Canada to Edinburgh, I noticed early on in kind of getting to know you online that you've you've often said that you are a Scot by choice. And (laughs) I've been using, since I started exploring my own Scottish history and heritage, I've used the mantra Texan by birth because I am a native Texan, but Scot by ancestry because I do have an ancestral Mm. history that reaches back into the 1600s in Scotland. You say you're a Scot by choice. Was it just the studies that brought you to Scotland, or did you have an earlier interest in Scotland prior to that? Was Scotland a target for you to go study, or was it just a perchance opportunity that arose that took you there? Yeah, I think there's a few reasons that uh, I ended up here, of all places, um, and those reasons have been reinforced uh, since my coming over. At the time, I was lucky enough to have a few options. Geneva was one, for instance, Amsterdam was another, um, and I thought about you know, what could give me a the best education? Sure. Um, but most importantly, B, you know, if you will, uh, where would I be happiest? What kind of society is the one that I really want to live in? Um, and the sort of pop culture impression of Scotland as being this very um, sort of, you know, tolerant, freedom loving, you know, Braveheart after all, <laughs> hey, it, it seeps in, you know, um, th- there is a funny kind of truth to it um, in the sense that 
Um, people here generally don't care, you know, where you were born, uh, what language you spoke first in life, what color your skin is, what your religion is. Um, as long as you love Scotland, want to make it a better place, whatever that means to you, then you're a Scot. Um, and I've heard that opinion expressed, you know, from every country, from Orkney down to Dumfries and Galloway, west to east. You know, it, it sounds a bit, uh, you know, cliche or uh romantic mm -hmm. um but i think it is true that you say you know you're sort of a, a scott by ancestry and i say i'm a scott by choice you know that that's enough for us to to be involved in society and to get a say um, which is a fantastic thing because especially you know nowadays unfortunately you're seeing so many societies become more closed and scotland is in fact opening itself up uh, to the world and that has historical roots. You know, you're a, a Scot by by blood, you know, by genealogy. Um, and that's because Scots ended up all over the world due to a variety of circumstances, yeah. you know, contributing yeah. to all corners. And uh, I like to think of it as sort of in the long game, Scotland now repaying the favor <laughs> and want to say, look, you know, our, our sons and daughters have gone off to just about every shore imaginable um and uh you know tried to make a life for themselves we get it um you know let's try to do the same for others now um so but perhaps that's you know as i say a bit romantic but i do see that uh, that trend here and that reasons that brought me to scotland and it's one of the things that that's keeping me here as well um add, add that to the fact that you know you've got castles which tends to you know it happens to be uh, you know the thing that i am uh, really into well and that brings me to really my next question and that is you're on twitter as the castle hunter so tell mm -hmm. me what is the castle hunter all about who is the castle hunter yeah, it's a fun way of getting involved with heritage i think and just coming up with a a, a bit of a a silly, you know, let's be honest, moniker, to start looking at history a bit differently, to look at it not just as sort of a dry relating of information, but an experience and a cool one at that. You know, I have a lot of fun doing what I do, and I think that's a big part of you know, the castle hunter ethos, if you will. Um, so it's a, a moniker I sort of came up with a, a few years back when I started up my uh, Twitter profile, I think, about three or four years ago. Um, and I've kind of just run with it. It seems to have stuck. It, it, it's great because I can feel quite a bit like a, you know, a big kid, because uh, in real life, I do get people referring to me as the castle hunter. And I just kind of shake my head and go, how did I pull that off? <laughs> <laughs> you know? um, so uh, there's a bit of sort of cheeky fun to it. But what I found is it's been a, a good way to just relate to people in the first instance, um, and show that history can be, you know, a lot more sort of compelling uh, and engaging than traditionally it's thought to be. So uh, what I'm all about is sort of sharing what I know about Scottish history in particular, because that just happens to be my forte um, with others and getting other people excited about it. You know, I love when people come to Edinburgh, Scotland for the first time and I get to show them around and see the excitement on their faces and, you know, sort of convey what I've come to learn to them and just allow them to share in that experience. Um, so that, that's a big part of what it's about as well. Well, let's talk a little bit then about castles. Scotland, of course, has no shortage of castles. As you say, you can barely throw a rock and not hit one there. <laughs> yeah. It is one of the major tourist attractions, one of the big reasons people come to Scotland. What is it about a castle that intrigues us so today? Well, I think you've got a, a few 
aspects to that. You know, one, it's it's just cool. You know, every kid can imagine a castle in their minds. It's got this sort of innate mystery attraction to it um, because it's sort of a monument from the past. It's a monument from a time that a lot of our lore and stories comes from. Um, so, you know, you can ask any kid uh, from pretty much any age, you know, to draw a castle and they'll be able to do that. Um, and I think that's just fantastic. Um, but also, uh, again, drawing in the political side of things, castles are a great way to understand where society is at at a certain point in time. Um, Walter Scott called them sort of living monuments, living historical documents. Um, and I like to think that's true in the sense that you can look at who's inhabiting a castle, how it's being used, um, how it's been developed, um, and you can sort of extrapolate what's going on in society from that. You know, where power lies, for instance. Um, in Scotland, it's quite interesting. So you've got a massive variety of castles. I mean, well over 2,000 in the country. And that's, you know, a very vague number it could be significantly more than that um, or somewhat less depending on how you define a castle um, but they tell us so much about the nature of power in the regions that they're found in uh, they tell us a lot about sort of what was available through scotland's connections with the wider world um, because it's castles acting as power centers where you get uh, diplomatic letters drawn up for instance, um, where you get a lot of trade coming into in the towns around castles and you start finding items from all over the world, you know, places like, uh, you know, things like dyes from Afghanistan, for instance, winding uh, up in the west coast of Scotland at a castle somewhere. And I love those little insights and what they can tell you about what was going on at the time. Um, so I think there's sort of this innate childhood curiosity. And there's also a great deal that as a historian or as a sociologist um, or as anyone really within the social sciences, um, you can sort of take away what you will from castles. You touched very briefly there on a concept I wanted to discuss, and, and that is what exactly is a castle? Because I was doing some research prior to chatting with you trying to say, my impression had been that Scotland had probably the most castles of any country in the world. I find out in most cases, Wikipedia and others say that's not true. They point, oddly enough, not far south from there to Wales. Um, I think, right. I think uh, if I remember right, the Czech, the Czech Republic perhaps figures highly in there. And, but there was the question, and, and it raised the question within me, what exactly is a castle? How do you define a castle? Yeah, you'd think it's it's something that's relatively easy to agree on, but there's a lot of debate around this, actually. Um, the way I approach it is that a castle has to do two things. It's got to be able to serve as an actual household. It's got to function to supply a member of the nobility, no matter where on that spectrum they fall, someone of reasonable means with reasonable comforts. Um, so it's got to have a domestic function. It also, of course, has to have, have a military function. Um, so it's got to be able to really take a hit. Um, one of the analogies I use, especially with North American audiences, is it's a bit like uh, you know the big house on the corner in a wealthy suburb. It might have a fence and a security system. Now, that's great. It'll slow down a burglar, but it's not going to even uh, make a SWAT team hesitate. Um, so to be a castle, <laughs> from from my perspective, it's got to be able to put up a solid fight uh, and be fairly militarized. Now, whether the 
military versus domestic function has to be split 50-50, 40-60. You know, there's not an exact number that I would assign to it. But um, you can tell quite clearly, I think, when something isn't a castle. Um, it's almost easier to say something isn't a castle than that something is a castle. Um, because you have in the later periods, especially from the mid-1600s onwards, um, a real uh, pattern of abandoning the old medieval castles and taking up residence in what I would call chateau. And these places can look like castles. They mm. can have sort of faux battlements, little towers, arrow slits. Um, but a lot of times they're not actually functional and they're purely aesthetic. So in that case, to me, that's missing a huge part of what is required to be a true castle. And then you go on the other end of the spectrum and you look at places like uh, Riven Barracks, for instance, which is up in uh, King Yusi in the Cairngorms. Um, and that's a old common castle built up on a massive mound um, in the 13th century, but it was converted in the Jacobite Risings to a more modernized fort. Um, so it has really no trace of the medieval castle left aside from the earthen mound itself. And there's no domestic function to it at all. It is purely military. It is only meant for a garrison to be able to occupy it for a short period of time and basically police the surrounding hills. That's not a castle because it's missing, missing the domestic function. So somewhere in the middle is your answer. Um, and a lot of people, I'm sure, would agree with that definition. A lot of people would disagree with it. So it's totally up for debate. Um, but I think it needs to do those two things in more or less equal measure. That's helpful to know, and that explains to me why one of my favorite places in Scotland, not far from where you were just talking about in Canusie, is Ardvariki Estate, which, of course, yes. was uh, is better known to millions as Glenn Bogle from the TV show Monarch of the Glen. That is what I call, if, if you know anything about me or learn anything about me, that is my Scottish ground zero. That's where I fell in love with Scotland. And I hear people referring to it sometimes and posting pictures of it on Facebook, at social media, et cetera, calling it a castle. And it has all of that look about it. It has the towers. It has the turrets, et cetera, et cetera. But as you say, to me, it has absolutely no military function whatsoever. It does provide the household and is still today a private residence. But it, it's a wonderful estate home, but it is not a castle, even though it may look like Disney's Snow White Castle. And that's a, it's a fine distinction. It could be castellated, you know, having castle-like features, but that doesn't necessarily make it a castle. Um, the thing to bear in mind is that a castle is fundamentally a product of the feudal age. So once you get to a point in history, again, that tends to be from sort of the mid-1600s onwards, where the institutions of feudalism aren't really dominant in society anymore. It doesn't really make sense to talk about castles anymore at that point, except for as sort of monuments that are having more and more of a connection with the past rather than the present or future. Um, so I, I think you're right. In the Agriki, for instance, it is, it's beautiful. I mean, looking at it, it's just stunning. Um, but it's not a castle because precisely, as you say, it was built too late to really in history for that. But it doesn't fit within my definition. And maybe I'm being picky um, because if you do look at that number, right, we fielded sort of 2,000 castles in Scotland, give or take. If you have a bit of a looser definition of what a castle is, that number could easily get up to 3,000. Um, I know that the 
big sort of encyclopedia of castles in uh, Scotland, uh, which is put together by Martin Coventry, um, has over 4,000 entries at this point. Now, that could be, uh, you know, somewhere where there's just a tiny little bump in the ground and nothing really visible. Um, And it could also be a country estate which has castellated features. So depending on how you define it, the number could inflate hugely. Um, But with the definition I go with, it tends to hover around sort of the 1500 mark. Mm, Okay. Well, and it's interesting. I have to wonder about Ardverki is that, again, a bit of Scottish heritage, Queen Victoria uh, visited and stayed there. And it was interesting to see that in the the recent television series with uh, Jenna Coleman, that there was some filming done at Ardverki. And Queen Victoria visited there and actually considered purchasing it as what would have become the Royals' summer home in Scotland. But the Midgies were so bad that <laughs> uh, that she went elsewhere and ended up, of course, in Balmoral. And, to, yeah. and am I correct in thinking Balmoral is thought of as a castle? And, and so I'm wondering, would Ardverki carry the castle moniker if history had proven differently and Queen Victoria had purchased it, perhaps? Uh, it could well. I mean, when something has a royal connection, it does tend to be um, given a grander title than it might otherwise have, <laughs> to say the least. Um, I mean, incidentally, Balmoral, uh, you know, looking at the definition I've put forward, isn't a castle either. Right. Uh, n- nearby, there are several places like uh, Braemar, for instance. Um, so uh, neither really truly have the moniker. Um, you know, uh, with the definition I'm putting forward. Um, but one of the things that sort of relates to what you mentioned is at least attention is being drawn to these places. I mean, the number of shows uh, and films which are featuring Scotland, most recently, actually, The Avengers, um, which is filming in Edinburgh as we speak. Right. Um, it's bringing a huge amount of attention to Scottish heritage sites. Uh, I mean, castles like Elandonan being used in Highlander, you know, is one of the classics, uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, which on a Dune castle amongst others. Um, and you can still go there today and get a set of coconuts from reception and, uh, <laughs> you know, get, get an audio tour by Terry Jones. I believe it is. It's great. Um, yeah, I, so, I was, uh, I actually visited Dune castle, but when I was there in January, it was closed. There was no one there, which was rather interesting because I could walk all around and I was there completely alone. So it was quite an interesting visit, but uh, you know, I couldn't get any coconuts. Ah, right. Well, you know, possibility is that they were doing Outlander filming, uh, which, of course, used Dune Castle extensively as well. Uh, So that's been a bit of a superstar in the last couple of years. Yeah. And and you talk about uh, the Avengers shooting in Edinburgh right now. Just literally minutes before we started recording this, uh, a buddy of mine had tweeted, uh, you know, essentially sort of a a bugger me. He was on the way to the to his pub in Edinburgh and he couldn't get down the street because it was blocked because (laughs) they were filming uh, the Avengers right there in that area right now. So Scott, my girlfriend just messaged me a little while ago saying that she couldn't get on her bus because of Avengers filming and she was held up from getting home. So there you go. Yeah. Yeah. So there you are. But yeah, it's. Scotland has become quite a mecca for uh, Hollywood, which is uh, which is a good thing for for the country, of course, and its economy. As well, it should be. I mean, there's of course the case of Game of Thrones, which could have been shot in Scotland had there been adequate facilities for it. Right. Uh, unfortunately, there weren't. I mean, it's great that Northern Ireland got it because that's definitely a place that deserves to get more attention than it was getting. Um, but uh, I'd love to see Scotland really pick up the mantle and run with that. It's got so much potential. And I battled with some of my friends in New Zealand. It, it's kind of uh, to me, it's disappointing that Lord of the Rings was filmed in New Zealand when, in fact, it was parts of Scotland that very much influenced and it's and inspired. Tolkien to write 
Lord oh, of the yes. Rings. Yes, and I want to talk about Game of Thrones because I know that's a pet subject of yours. We'll get into that uh, shortly. We talked about in your definition of a castle that it needs to provide a household purpose and a military purpose. The household purpose, I, I think most any tourist uh, visiting a castle, even if they've never seen one, can immediately come to grips with the the military, the fortress part of what a castle yeah. is. Where I think we have a hard time sometimes is the household part. People look at a castle and go, my word, how did people live in these places? And of course, in some cases, they are refurbished where you can tour them, Edinburgh Castle, Eileen Donan, etc. Others like Urquhart are just standing ruins. And yet we have a hard time envisioning life in that time. And something you said that caught my interest in one of your Dig It TV pieces was talking about the concept that a room having a single purpose is very much a modern concept, that that was not the case in the days that people were living in castles. Rooms were much more multifunctional. How do you relate with people when you're visiting with them, talking about castles and explaining the way of life in a castle versus what we see? How do you help people perceive what life in a castle may have been like? Sure. Uh, well, there's a really easy way to do it, which is to uh, point at any one of the number of slop drains that a castle surely has, especially <laughs> ones that are in privy closets. And uh, people can quite quickly imagine the aromas that would be uh, yes. <laughs> coming out of those. Um, thank goodness you know, we don't have smell vision on this podcast. Thank goodness indeed. Yeah, yeah. So that's a, that's a quick way to do it. Um, but uh, one thing to remember when you're going through the vast majority of castles uh, as well is that you look at it and you do think, my God, you know, who would want to live here? It's just stone walls. It's drafty, it's bare, um, but the vast majority of castles would have had wall hangings, for instance, to soften up the appearance of a place. There would have been paintings within, murals, in fact, put directly onto the walls, uh, wooden and plaster paneling, just depending on the period. Um, so they absolutely would have treated it as a home, you know. Um, they wouldn't want it to have been needlessly uncomfortable. Uh, so anytime they could supply a little bit of furniture or even, uh, you know, you oftentimes, even in the ruins, see window seats carved out of stone where there would have been cushions of sorts and nice window views. Um, so just like us, they wanted to, you know, have a place to relax. Um, so I try to paint a picture with people of that. And to bear in mind that when you're going through a castle, nine times out of ten, it wouldn't have just been bare stone walls. There would have been things to liven the place up. Um, um, but a good example comes to mind at Durleton Castle, which is out in East Lothian, and that's uh, just east of Edinburgh. It's an area that's got a huge variety of really impressive baronial castles from the Golden Age, which is generally regarded to be sort of the mid-1200s uh, through early 1400s. And that was when a huge number of massive, very impressive castles were built in Scotland. Um, so Durleton has a pretty remarkable feature in that it's got a very large uh, serving hatch between the kitchen and a corridor. And it's basically, you know, you're medieval drive-through for want of a better phrase um, you know you, you pull out the one servant pulls up into the hall the people in the kitchen are cooking things over the fire you know in massive pots they take out one of the dishes put it on a massive platter put it through the serving hatch the other servant comes along picks it up takes it into the hall there you go and it's these you know little interactions these little places where you can very much imagine someone doing their job or you know someone um you know doing this small task that we can relate to that i think really helped to bring people into it i was just going to say the next time i go through a uh, a drive through at mcdonald's or some other restaurant i'm going to have a totally different visual concept now <laughs> yeah well they had their own idea because in some cases they would have a uh, seller which 
had a stair that would go directly up into the hall so that there would be no delay in getting wine to the table if, heaven forbid, they ran out during a feast. Um, so you could go straight from the store cellar, you know, in the basement, up one or two levels, right to the table. There you go. <laughs> I can't argue with that. That That's a plan yeah. I could certainly get behind. Yeah. 2017 is the year of history, heritage, and archaeology. It's uh, another themed year that Visit Scotland and the Scottish government put forward to promote tourism. In your perspective, who do you see as being more interested in Scotland's castles and their history? Is it the people who live in Scotland and maybe don't appreciate what is around them in their immediate uh, vicinity? Or is it the people who tend to visit Scotland from abroad? Mm. I mean, I think oftentimes you do see the phenomenon of, um, you know, people not knowing what's in their backyard and people who come from elsewhere are almost more keen to find out. Uh, but I mean, that's very true with myself. You ask me about Canadian history and I will give you a big blank stare. Um, <laughs> if you ask me about Scottish history, then, you know, then we're talking. Um, so, so there is a little bit of that going on. I do think that there's a huge appetite for Scottish heritage and history internationally. And when I say internationally, um, you know, I look at places like Scandinavia. Scandinavia, Germany, where there's a huge amount of interest in Scotland, um, but much further afield as well. I mean, Scotland receives visitors from everywhere. Um, a lot of people coming from China and Japan, for instance, um, who are just blown away by the castles. And that's great to see. So I think internationally, thanks in part to pop culture, that Scotland already has quite a, quite a reputation. It's got quite a pull factor going for it. Um, what the Year of History, Heritage and Archaeology is trying to do is you know, engage those people absolutely. Um, but also to get people in Scotland more aware of what's going on and how they can actually get involved and also changing perceptions of what history and heritage is. I mean, a lot of people hear archaeology and they think, oh, right, you know, kneeling in a muddy trench uh, with a little toothbrush scrubbing off a piece of rock that I pro that probably won't even be anything. Right. Um, and what you're seeing with uh, HHA 2017 uh, is a lot of really innovative, cool projects, things like recreating historic sites uh, like the Antonine Wall through Minecraft um, or, you know, that same uh, technology taking you out to St. Kilda, a place where very few people will actually be able to go in their lives. Um, you're getting local groups which are doing events which are playing off ancient beliefs, but making them fun and accessible. Um, things like the Beltane Fire Society, for instance, which hosts a massive fire festival uh, for Beltane and Samwen up on Colton Hill in Edinburgh. So it is very much about engaging international audience, but also um, sort of reminding people that there's a huge, rich variety of things to do right in their own backyard. One of the things I've experienced in going to quite a few of the castles is, you know, I'll be down a, a little rural road somewhere. I'll have no idea where I am if I've taken the right turn. I'll stop, knock on a door, hope they know what I'm talking about. I'll ask them, well, I'm looking for the old tower. Um, and I know it's within, you know, 200 yards at most to where I am. And they go, what old tower? And it, to me, it's unbelievable that you'd have a historical monument nearby and you wouldn't know about it. Um, but again, that's me coming as an outsider. So I would love for anyone who has something of historical interest in their neighborhood to know about it and be proud of it and want to walk their dog there or want to take their grandkids there, you name it, any number of activities. Um, so I, I think, you know, without being too corny, it really is trying to be for everyone. 
Well, and it's that's an interesting concept to, to hear you talk about because we addressed that that very issue in the earlier episode of the podcast that I did with uh, Jeff Sanders and Mari mm-hmm. McFadgen. I related to having grown up in, and lived in Texas when I lived and worked in San Antonio for a, a few years, how surprised I was at how many San Antonians who live in the city where the Alamo exists, which is the the cradle of Texas of liberty. Yeah. It's where the state of Texas was born, in essence. And how many people who lived and grew up in San Antonio had never visited, never seen the Alamo, other than perhaps driving by it. Right. And, and we talked about the same thing. Jeff and Mari both talked about how when they have friends and visitors who come to Edinburgh, and I'm sure you've experienced this, and they come to see the castle, and suddenly the castle becomes more alive to them, seeing it through mm-hmm. the eyes of a visitor who's not seen it before. Oh, oh yeah, absolutely. That's one of the reasons I enjoy being a tour guide is, um, you know, you get to see that excitement firsthand. And that, that does absolutely drive you as well. Um, and you, you're always, you know, I'm always learning things from people, you know, in, in very unexpected places, which is great. Um, now, one of the examples I, I look to here, uh, you know, that uh, Jeff is is quite aware of over at Diggit, um, is the Bannockburn Heritage Centre. Yes. Um, just as you were saying, you know, it's a place which is absolutely central to Scotland's history. I mean, it's one of the most phenomenally outmatched or uh, unevenly matched rather battles in medieval history. And yet, if you ask a lot of people before the centre was really developed, what happened at Bannockburn, even if they were living you know, right on the battlefield where soldiers would have fallen, a lot of them would have been able to tell you one or two sort of vague facts that they had heard, hadn't really been taught in schools very much until quite recently. And coming from outside, you know, I thought, how can you not know about Bannockburn? So then they've uh, developed this new center where effectively you've got this table in the middle of a very high-tech feeling room. And it's a live video game where each visitor can actually control a unit of soldiers with an actual name attached to it of a historical commander at the battle and they can take part and recreate it and then find out afterwards what actually happened it's a really immersive piece of technology and i actually you know used to work there and the number of times i would uh, you know have a group of school kids come in and i would ask them how much do you know about the battle and they would go as eh, robert bruce the english invaded something like that yeah and then afterwards after putting them through this experience you know playing this battle game with them where they really felt like they were involved they felt the stakes you know they get the adrenaline uh, rose up anytime there was a volley of arrows or knights charging and then they would leave and even if they didn't know all the facts and dates that's fine because now they're excited about it now they're really into it now they're gonna go oh man remember that time we played that awesome game about bannockburn what was that all about anyway let's go again and find out more let's you know do something else to get engaged with this And, and that's what i think it's all about really and that's that's a sentiment that I think uh, definitely Jeff Sanders over at Diggit would um, very much get behind. And, and isn't that the way we reach young people today is through video and video games? You know, I, I can sense that probably we may not know for years, we may never know, but perhaps one of the kids that you led through that experience at the visitor center there at Bannockburn, may, that may be the hook for them that Braveheart the movie was for you. I, I truly hope so. That would be an incredibly rewarding thing, uh, you know, to, to have that happen, even if it was just one. 
so yeah, I really hope that that has been the case. Uh, and and you're right that we've got to find new ways of engaging with new audiences and new demographics. Um, that doesn't mean entirely abandoning the old way of doing things. I mean, the joy on kids' faces when they just got to pick up a good old-fashioned spear, for instance. I mean, never mind all the 3D technology. When they got into the weapons and armor room and actually yeah. put on some chainmail. I mean, that's an unforgettable, unreplicable experience as well. I mean, you, you never want to take that side of things away. But there is a new way of communicating, and that is very much digital. Um, that's through things like video games, through live broadcasting, uh, which is becoming a bigger and bigger phenomenon in our time, uh, not just for recording events as they happen, but for actually using for educa education, uh, which is great. I mean, one of the things that I do is I do live broadcasting through Periscope. Um, and I was over at the Linlithgow Palace recently, flipped it on, decided to do a quick video at the end of a day of cycling. And uh, it got featured before I knew it. 180,000 people had watched this video wow. of uh, me just walking around the outside of the Lithgow Palace, having a little chat about the history of the area. Um, so, I mean, it, it is a bit of a lightning in the bottle type thing. You never quite know when it's going to strike. Um, but it is a great new way of talking with people and getting them engaged. You know, there were people viewing that from all over the world, a couple guys from Kazakhstan, I remember from Peru, I mean, you name it, um, who were getting to see live a place of historical significance in Scotland. And I think that's just incredible. And uh, heritage organizations and individuals who have any interest in Scottish heritage would be crazy not to take advantage of that. And that brings us back to uh, to Dig It TV that I spoke with Jeff Sanders about. It's not new to the year of history, heritage, and archaeology. It actually began, I think, a couple of years ago. You'll correct me if I'm wrong there. But as Jeff and I discussed, it aided me in prepping for my chat with you because I'm able to, sitting here in my home in Louisiana in the United States, log on to YouTube, get onto the Dig It TV YouTube channel, and, and I can see countless numbers of pieces where you and the other two presenters, there are three of you, each of you with a different area of specialty, and they're short four, five, six, seven-minute clips. In your case, you taking us and touring us around various castles, which I found just absolutely astounding that I can visit and see places in Scotland that even though I've been there, I've not yet seen. And in some cases now have given me the urge that when I return on my next trip, there are a couple of places I would like to go see based on, on those clips. And that's all a technology that allows people sitting at home anywhere in the world to still be a part of not only Scotland, Scotland's history and heritage, but certainly this year of history, heritage, and archaeology. What's that experience like for you to be a part of, of Dig It TV? And how do you see that in helping to push the agenda of history, heritage, and archaeology? Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt that more and more people, especially younger people, are going in the first instance online to places like YouTube to find out about things. They'll hear about something and you fire it into Google, you fire it into YouTube, you watch a video. That's how you get your first introduction to a subject. Um, so for me, it's a real privilege to be involved in something like Dig It, where someone could, you know, out of curiosity, look up a subject, look up a place and we're there to introduce them to it. Um, and we all have a very different approach, myself and the other two presenters, uh, Josh and Saga. Um, Saga is very much into the uh, folklore side of things. She's got an incredible amount of knowledge about uh, witchcraft and pagan traditions, for instance. Um, and Josh's thing, he'll proudly say, is death. He's got a fascination with sort of the culture of death, um, burial rituals, everything involved with that side of things. So we we bring very different cards to the table. Um, but one of the things that Diggit tries to do is highlight, yes, the mainstream sort of historical events out of sight, but also cool incidences that 
people will be able to relate to. Um, and I know we're going to have our Game of Thrones, you know, geek out before long. Um, but one of them is Game of Thrones, where in uh, a lot of my videos, it's sort of Scotland goes pop is the theme where I am tying in <laughs> right. pop culture. Right. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you, the few stories get people's jaws to drop lower than when I tell them that the Red Wedding is real. And that it happened at Edinburgh Castle. Um, and so putting those types of stories in connections in with these stories on a medium like YouTube, um, hopefully people will watch that and go, oh, my God, you're, you're kidding me. I've got to go there and see where the Red Wedding happened. Um, so even if, for instance, you're, you're not in the, um, you know, primarily interested in Scottish history, if you're a Game of Thrones fan, all of a sudden you've got a reason to go to a heritage site in Scotland. Um, and you get enough of those reasons, all of a sudden you're booking your trip. Absolutely, yeah. And let's go ahead and get into that Game of Thrones geek out. And and I guess we're going to have a bit of a generational discussion here. I'm not sure of your age. I, I'm about to be 64. But as I said earlier, my interest in Scotland was shaped and the hook that got me in was Monarch of the Glen, television show, video mm. about a place in Scotland that, yeah, it set the hook and made me want to go there and visit. And I've now been there and game of Thrones and the YouTube phenomena and video and all of that. I was, as I was watching some of your pieces on dig it TV, I then stumbled into, and uh, knowing of your obsession with game of Thrones, I then saw and stumbled into some pieces on YouTube where another gentleman whose name escapes me, but he was examining some of the castles that are in Game of Thrones and discussing whether or not their design was realistic. And if so, which parts were, which parts weren't, how, was it a fantasy castle? Was it a, was, could it have been, could it actually have existed? I know the existed? video you mean. Yeah. yeah. It was really well put together. <laughs> and so, but it was interesting because I probably would never have discovered that if I hadn't been first looking at, had an interest in Scotland, then been looking at Dig It TV because of this coming conversation with you, which then led me on to discover something else. I will admit, I am not a Game of Thrones fan. It just hasn't caught with me. I was trying to watch last night uh, J.K. Rowling's latest movie, not, I guess, the Harry Potter prequel or whatever, the thing about beasties in New York. And, right, I, and right. I've never been more bored in my life. <laughs> there are people who are going to go, what? But that's the truth. It just I'm going to try and watch it again and see if maybe I missed something. But it just didn't catch with me. Yeah, different strokes. Whereas years and years and years ago, I became a huge fan of Tolkien and Lord of the Rings. But anyway, uh, the point is Monarch of the Glen hooked me and brought me into the conversation. Uh, Game of Thrones obviously has hooked you, and you see a tremendous amount of relation to Scottish, uh, to Scotland and its heritage in the television show Game of Thrones. Yeah, there are a number of connections, really, and uh, I've actually got a, a talk coming up in Edinburgh yes. um, with history sessions on this very subject. So it would be uh, great to uh, you know sh share this then. One of the main connections uh, I think I've mentioned it already is that uh, right here in Edinburgh, looking up, I can almost see the castle from where I am. Um, is the Red Wedding, which was one of these you know very shocking episodes in the story, um, and it's it's widely regarded as being one of the most infamous scenes in modern television history now. Um, and I don't want to spoil anything for you. So, you know, since you've not seen it, um, you know, tell me if you're all right with spoilers, but uh, I'll try to behave on that front. No, that, um, that's fine. I, it won't bother me. And if my audience is, you know, if they're Game of Thrones fans out there, then they can tune out when, you know, sure, yeah. well, knowing there's spoiler a spoiler, yeah, going spoiler now, coming. So yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, well, uh, effectively, one of the major families in Game of Thrones, I'll try not to be too specific, um, was slaughtered when they were invited to wedding ceremonies um, 
and this was a you know result of political machinations they were received as guests and received guest right so they were promised that they would be safe and the fact that they were killed despite that was seen as a huge betrayal of trust and the people who perpetrated the red wedding uh were sort of blacklisted throughout the land as far as everyone was concerned um and that's got a huge parallel in scottish history where you did have the guest right playing a huge role in uh sort of the norms and customs of highland society in particular but all throughout Scotland, you had a version of it. And at Edinburgh Castle in 1440, there was an event called the Black Dinner, which sounds just as ominous as the Red Wedding. Um, basically, the Douglas family at that time was incredibly powerful, almost as powerful as the Crown. They had received huge lands under Robert Bruce, and uh, the descendants of James Douglas, who was Bruce's lieutenant, had made the most of that power, built many of the most powerful castles throughout Scotland. Um, and so they were seen as you know, potential real rivals. Um, the king at the time was James II. He was only 10 years old in 1440, and his advisors were Crichton and Livingston. They were really pulling the strings. So Crichton and Livingston thought, right, we're not terribly comfortable with the amount of power that the young Earl of Douglas has got. William Douglas, 16 years old, strutting around a little bit. We've got to do something about this, but we can't just out and kill him because that will probably end badly for everyone involved. So we've got <laughs> to put some kind of scheme. So what they did was they invited William Douglas uh, to Edinburgh Castle and he was winded and dined along the way. Um, he went into the castle again under promise of guest right. He received food and drink and that was seen as sacrosanct. You know, break that um, and you're not worth the air you're breathing. Um, but nonetheless, after a little while of good natured festivities, apparently William Douglas and the young king James II were getting along quite well. Uh, two young, powerful guys probably just bragging away about all their stuff, right? Um, all of a sudden, pipes started playing. A black bull's head was brought out on a silver platter placed in front of William Douglas. And whether he was killed right there at the table or brought out onto the castle esplanade and then tried and killed, either way, he was butchered. And that was the, the black dinner. It caused a huge uh, revolt in Scotland, big power struggle. Um, so George R. R. Martin has said that that was actually the direct inspiration for the Red Wedding. He threw in a little bit of the massacre of Glencoe as well in 1692, which, with which you'll be very familiar. Yes. Uh, and it's great that he's actually, you know, sort of spared me the work of saying, oh, no, no, believe me, this is this is a parallel because he has actually said, um, you know, directly that that was his influence, which is very helpful. Um, and he did come to Scotland in the north of England when he was writing the books. I mean, he still is writing the books, of course. Um, and he looked out particularly from atop Hadrian's wall and just thought, imagine being a Roman legionary from North Africa, Italy, the Danube, any of the other Roman territories. Imagine coming to the limit of the earth, Ultima Thule, and looking out beyond the wall and just imagining what would be coming at you out of those woods, out of those hills. Um, and he really wanted to capture those feelings. And that's what inspired him to create this massive 700-foot wall of ice, um, which has obvious parallels with Hadrian's Wall, mm -hmm. um, but also the Antonine Wall, which was really the true frontier of the Roman Empire of Britain. Um, so Scotland does have claim to having the wall. Uh, and I do like to say when folks come up from England, you know, like, congratulations on making it north of the wall. Uh, and that's actually <laughs> a relatively well-received uh, little joke I can have with them. Well, all of that is quite interesting. One, because my ancestry is Clan Douglas. So I've just learned a bit of history that I did not, Clan history I was not aware of. My Oh, fantastically ferocious family, uh, producing guys with names like the Grimm 
and Belle the Cat. Um, Douglas's, if you want drama, are definitely the guys to turn to. Ah, well, that's good to know because I may need a moniker one of these days, you know, like the Castle Hunter, so I could think of come something from <laughs> my my clan history. And of and course, I was following a proud tradition. Yeah, and I was immediately uh, reminded as you first started talking, and I didn't want to interrupt you of the massacre at, at Glencoe um, mm-hmm. and that part of of history and how that is a relation. And so maybe I'm going to have to spend some time and start playing catch up on Game of Thrones. I don't know. We'll have uh, to see. I'm happy to be your source if need be. So. Uh, Feel free to drop me a line anytime and I'll get you all caught up. Well, okay, that you got a deal there. I may have to start uh, trying to see if I can't get caught up on that and maybe become a new fan of it. Um, it typically just hasn't been my thing, but you know, if it has an interest in Scotland, then it certainly could catch my interest in a hurry. I want to get back to castles for just a, a, a minute. I'm sure you could talk forever on, on Game of Thrones. I won't steal that from you because, as you say, you have a talk coming up. I believe it's May 4th. Is that the right date? Uh, You've got me there. Let okay. me just double check. Yeah. Uh, that is May the 24th. 24th. Okay. Right. Well, yeah. gosh, that's just the day after my birthday. I wish I could be there. But well, if possible, I'm going to see if we can record it and then put it up online. So, Oh, that uh, would be if, great. If nothing else, I'm going to try to do that for everyone. Okay. Well, that would be awesome because I would love to, to see that and, and hear it. With regard to the issue of castles themselves, another of your clips on Dig it TV, and I forget the castle, I think it was, if I have it in my notes here, Cora Castle perhaps? Um, yes. You made the suggestion that really struck home with me that we should be thinking of castles much like sunken ships, that even though the use that they were built for has long since ended, they can and often still are useful structures. In the case of Cora Castle, you were making the point, I think, in relation to three colonies of bats who make their home there. So I'll let you explain the usefulness of that. But I thought that was an interesting viewpoint that we should look at castles as still serving a purpose today, even if not the purpose they were originally designed for. And that begets a bigger question, and that is, is it best for castles to be restored, brought back to life, for example, like in Eileen Donan, where one can go in and tour it and see and get a real sense of what, uh, at least a, a fairly real sense of what life could have been like back in the day and what the structures were like? or left as they are, uh, again, at like Castle Dune and uh, Urquhart, where it is basically ruins and one has to use a great deal of imagination. Where do you fall between that restore or simply preserve when it comes to castles? Yeah, well, uh, if we can crack this one, the heritage industry will be very happy with this because I've been struggling (laughs) with this for decades. Um, Castles, in a sense, aren't relevant anymore in the way that they were originally designed. Their initial purpose has been made redundant um, because society has moved on. Um, but that doesn't mean that um, you know they don't still have value, of course. That doesn't mean they're not um, part of an evolving story themselves. Um, so one of the things, you know, and you point to it in the case of uh, Cora Castle, is that these places are becoming what's now known as uh, part of the historic environment. That's really one of the big buzzwords going around. Um, and you've got Historic Scotland, for instance, the largest uh, heritage body in Scotland, recently changing their name to Historic Environment Scotland to reflect this, um, that castles and the places traditionally think of as heritage sites aren't the only part of heritage and of our story. Um, in fact, when you really look at them, something like a castle doesn't really make sense unless you understand their 
immediate environment, uh, the topography around them, um, again, the wider political situation, it actually brings in a lot more questions they, than they initially seem to. Um, now, in a few cases, you have you know, quite a, a good functional purpose for them in terms of conservation, like bat colonies settling in them. I think that's great. You know, if people aren't going to live in them, hey, let the bats have them. Um, <laughs> so, uh, and there are conservation bodies which, which are involved with maintaining those castles as well as looking after those populations of wild animals. I mean, that's just one very particular example of what can happen with a castle. Um, but yeah, I brought up this analogy that uh, they are a little bit like sunken ships that become coral reefs. Um, and I do think there's a, a certain poetry to that. I, I like that. I'm not committed to having every single castle in Scotland perfectly preserved, you know, as best as possible. I do think there's value in ruin, actually, to a certain extent. Um, so it's a very complex question. But generally speaking, what I would like to see is a number of places which get significant investment to make them into really good examples of what castle restoration looks like. And you, Elendonan being one, for instance, you've got Dewart Castle on the Isle of Mull being another very, very good example of that. Um, there are a number of uh, smaller tower houses all throughout Scotland, which are being developed, some more tastefully than others, but some according to very good historical standards. Um, and, you know, many are being widely regarded as great examples of restoration. I think that's a good thing. And if we can open some places like those up to the public um, so that people can understand what they would have looked like in their heyday, then that'd be great. Um, but at the same time, um, ruins are not only incredibly satisfying, but incredibly illustrative as well. Oftentimes, castles, of course, were subject to siege. Um, they would have a fire where the roof would give out. That's all a part of the story. Um, and I think that being able to observe ruins um, is really important in understanding what can happen to castles and appreciating the bigger picture surrounding them. Um, again, maybe, uh, you know, I'm being a bit romantic in that sense. Um, I do like a good moss-covered ruin on a windswept crag. I'm not really a, a palace guy. I tend to err more <laughs> towards the um, sort of the, the, the rough ones rather than, you know, places with too many gold-framed portraits and the like. Um, again, those places are are great heritage sites, but I tend to like a good ruined castle. Um, so I think there's room for all of that. Um, you can't, unfortunately, realistically restore and care for every single castle site in Scotland. There's just not the resources out there. Um, but I do think that projects like Canmore, for instance, which are responsible for documenting um, pretty much every site of archaeological and historical significance in Scotland have a huge role to play in this, where it could, for instance, identify places that have potential for restoration um, to be used for educational purposes. Um, could also identify places where just maintaining the current state of ruin is the priority. Um, there are a great number of castles in the Western Isles, like Akanduin uh, on the Isle of Lismore, um, which are in a fantastic state of ruin um, that I think can be very well preserved just as they are. Um, and also identifying which ones do need to be subject to just those natural processes. I mean, you do see a lot of castles in Scotland being reclaimed by the vegetation. Um, and that is a part of their story as well, um, no less legitimate than um, being restored, I think. So that is a controversial position, um, but I, I do tend to think that restoration is appropriate in some cases, but in other cases, let time take its course. 
Okay. I'm curious what the debate in Scotland is about access to some of these historic places because I've got really bad knees. And and so that raises the issue of access, and especially with Scotland having a very aging population in many ways. How do you see that people complaining that there's not a lift? I'd love to go to the top of Wallace Tower and see the view from there, be able to look at the battlefield from there. But physically, I'm I'm not going to be able to do it. If I were a younger man, yes, but now I, I just can't do it. And I know that, and that's okay. I'd love to climb and see the fairy pools on the Isle of Skye when I was there, but I knew that I could not do it. And so I just accept that is my limitation, and I enjoy Scotland in other ways and do other things. But what's your take on how accessible should things like that be made versus keeping them, I guess, original, for lack of a better term? Well, I, I could sympathize a little bit because I uh, ruined my right knee coming down Ben Nevis about three years ago. Oh. So uh, anytime I'm on a decline, uh, I get a, a pain there as well. So my my um, Monroe climbing days are over, unfortunately, or at least until it uh, gets better. So I could sympathize with you a bit there. Um, but it, it's a, a really tough issue because, as you say, you know, you, you can't install a lift at a lot of these places. It's just not possible. Um, but I do firmly believe that they should be open to as many people as possible. You know, accessibility should be as close to universal as possible whenever possible. Um, so the best thing I think going in that regard is the amount of effort going into the digital side of things these mm. days, where even if you're not able to physically visit a site, which is unfortunate, um, you know, at least there are now ways that you can experience that place that you wouldn't have been able to 10, 15 years ago. Um, so with things like broadcasting, for instance, uh, you know, with 3D modeling, um, these are ways that even if you can't physically go to a site, you can still understand them and be awed by them um, and study them and feel as though you you have been there, especially, um, you know, when you do get a, a guided tour through live broadcasting, that sort of thing. Um, so, I mean, there's, there's no perfect answer, unfortunately. Um, but I think that that helps anyway, the amount yeah. of effort being put into digital access to properties is, you know, it's generally regarded as something that mainly, mainly benefits young people. Um, and they certainly do benefit from it, but, um, also people who aren't physically able to access these places will see huge benefits from that as well. Yeah, that's a great point. And um, yeah, I would absolutely agree with that. And and yet I think you should still go out. For example, I went to Dumbarton Castle and it does have that beautiful flat garden in front, beautiful green space that you can walk around and look up. And, you know, yeah, I can't make the climb up to the top and enjoy the view from there. But it doesn't mean that I can't go and enjoy the site. And the same is true of, well, Urquhart Castle, because, again, I took the boat trip out onto Loch Ness because I was going to find Nessie like everybody. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But I was able to, you know, at least I can say I've been there. I've seen it. I've not seen it in as much detail and perhaps not as close up as other people have. But I was able to go and see it and visit it within my own personal limitations. And so I think people have to be cautious not to say, well, I can't do that. Therefore, I'm not going to go. I think you go and you make the most of what you can do. And then, as you say, if you can rely on digital sources and other things to enhance your experience. But I think having having been to Urquhart Castle, for example, I can now watch videos of it and see programs about it and appreciate it that much more because at least I've been there and I have some sense of what it's like, even if I haven't walked the entire grounds. 
Yeah, and, and having some form of on-site interpretation is a big plus as well. Um, obviously, that only comes where funding is available, and the vast majority of places in Scotland just don't have the funding behind yeah. them to, you know, do a big diorama of a place like you know, like you get at a place like Urquhart. Um, but yeah, that 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 also helps. Um, so I very much encourage people wherever possible to get out there, do as much as you possibly can do, um, and then if there is some limitation, usually going online can you know, in a sense, get you over that. A couple of quick fire questions for you. You've explored, I think, last I saw something over 200 castles. What's your favorite? <laughs> that, that, that's like one of these uh, desert island questions. Right, you know, right. <laughs> struggle over it for ages. Um, uh, because, of course, there's so many castles in Scotland. So I would look at Denoter Castle. Um, it's D-U-N-N-O-T-T-A-R. Mm. Um, and I would say if you had to visit one castle during your time in Scotland, that could very well be the one to see. Which is, in your opinion, the most unusual? Ooh. The most unusual castle? Uh, that's a really good question. Um, and I, I, have, I, have one in, I have one in mind, so I'm curious to see what you say. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's all kinds of ways of defining unusual, of course. You know, ones that span different eras, one which have really strange-looking ruins left over. Um, one that definitely comes to mind uh, is Loch Maven Castle, which is down uh, in Dumfries and Galloway. It's not too, too far from Dumfries itself. Um, and the ruins of it are uh, stripped of their, their sort of outer layer. So the fine, refined stones, the ashlar stones have been taken away. So it's all the coarse rubble work the stones that are and the walls that are left over um and there's a certain quality to it where again it's sort of moss strewn whenever i go there it feels like you're in the peruvian rainforest the the ruins look like something from a different continent entirely um and scotland's got a few places up its sleeve like that which really surprise you uh the first time i saw palm trees in scotland for instance i sort of did double take like, you know, <laughs> pinch me am i dreaming what's going on yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. so uh Loch Maven castle is definitely a candidate because it just looks like something that you really wouldn't expect to find uh this far north of course it is a you know a 12th century medieval castle it just happens to be in that state of ruin um and natural reclamation that puts a really interesting uh, spin on it well, and see, I was gonna gonna ask about uh, if I get the name right here. Is it Hunting Tower? Hunting Tower, yes, a great site and really, really weird. Two towers built uh, yeah. side by side. Right, and, and and again, that's one I picked up from one of your Dig It TV sections and where that question came from. But I thought that was quite an unusual story: two towers built separately and then connected together. Oh, it, it very much is. No one really knows why. Um, I mean, there's a slightly amusing story about that, which is that uh, William Riven, who was the, the person who originally developed it around 1500, um, had two sons and they were in a habit of feuding. Um, so outwardly, he had to maintain the impression that, oh, you know, we're united as family, but actually they were bickering all the time, driving him nuts. So we built two towers side by side, <laughs> just out of arm's reach, so they could, you know, be there in times of need and defend each other, but they would also be separated to give them some peace so that, that, that's one uh, sort of theory for why they did it uh, the two towers have since been connected um, but it is a very unusual site you do get times where towers are built relatively nearby um, and it's very very rare for a tower house to be completely freestanding vast majority of the times you would have outbuildings around it um, so that does make hunting tower very weird you get these two right side by side um, so that, that was a good candidate for sure 
What if I were to ask what castle in Scotland is the most historically significant? Oof. Um, for that, you would probably have to look to somewhere like Stirling Castle. Um, there's a few others that I've got in mind, places like Bothwell, um, which is just south of Glasgow, and it's been called the um, grandest piece of secular architecture bequeathed to us from the Middle Ages. Um, and it's got Douglas connections as well, actually, so you'd be a fan. Um, but if you're talking about a place that sums up Scottish history, I think you would be very hard-pressed to do better than Stirling Castle, um, because Stirling has been the crucible of Scotland for over a thousand years. It's at this narrow pinch point in the land, and if you want to control the whole country, you've got to take Stirling. There's just no way around it. Um, and it's in the shadow of Stirling that the Battle of Stirling Bridge was fought, that the Battle of Bannockburn was fought. Kings were born and spent a great amount of time there. It was the main administrative seat of Scotland for hundreds of years. Um, and uh, it, it's actually called Stirling, uh, Stirling comes from Lee, which is place of strife. Um, and that's the old Gaelic name. So pretty much since it's had a name, it's been identified as a place worth fighting for. Um, so um, I think it, it's got to be sterling at the end of the day, um, because it's just so iconic and so representative of the themes in Scottish history. You're working on a book. Tell me about that. What can we expect in a book by the Castle Hunter? It, it very, very slowly working on it is the key here. <laughs> it's been uh, sort of fermenting for the, the last couple of years. Writing the great uh, Scottish novel, is that it? Yeah, yeah, something like that. Um, so uh, it's an idea I had when, when I realized, you know, oh, I've been to 20, 25 castles or so. Maybe I should do something about this, put pen to paper. Um, and now having been to a great many more, I like to think that I've got some decent stories to share. So the idea is eventually to get a book which uh, highlights what I consider to be sort of the top 20 or so most historically significant, most interesting to visit, um, and just most impressive castles in Scotland. Um, I would like to have some of the lesser known ones, not just the ones on the, the main tourist trail. Um, and the idea would be uh, to make it quite a sort of engaging book by way of images, by way of uh, little sort of side information panels with side stories, um, battlefield maps where relevant. Um, so I do want it to be quite visual, sort of inspired by a series of books that I really enjoyed reading growing up, um, which was, I just call it the Battles of series. I think Amber Books uh, were the publishers of it. Um, and they've got just really dynamic sort of 10 page or so summaries of these big battles. And I'd like to do the same for Scottish castles, um, talking about some of the major ones, but also ones that not too many people know about as well. Um, so part of what I've been doing over the last few years is doing photography for that. Um, anytime I go to a site, you know, it's just with my phone, don't have any serious or anything. Um, but I'll go around, take pictures, um, record some stories, talk with people in the area. And one day, ideally within the next year or two, um, that's going to be uh, on shelves somewhere. So I'd love to get that in with uh, Historic Scotland, for instance. Right now, it's a matter of hunting down a publisher um, and, of course, lots of side projects to keep me distracted, lots of excuses to not do it. Um, but uh, fingers crossed within two years or so, there will be a Scotland Castles book on the shelves. Last question. If I can visit Scotland and visit only one castle, which should it be? And I'm going to add a part two. When I come to Scotland, why should I make it a point to visit a castle? Okay, so I think part one then, what castle should you see? In my mind, it's got to be Denoder Castle, um, which is in Stonehaven, just outside of Aberdeen. It's on the coast. 
and it is just one of the most jaw-dropping castles you'll ever see. It's situated on a crag which has cliff faces dropping down into the sea on three sides. There's a very narrow pass that you have to climb down and then up to get into the castle, single access point, and you just look at it and think, pity the person who had to attack that um and so not only is it visually spectacular but also pretty much anyone who's anyone in scottish history has been there since quite ancient times because it was a hill fort of sorts um even as far back as the ninth century um quite a famous incident after a major battle the battle of brunenborough where uh, king constantine was forced back to denoder castle and had to negotiate with the uh, anglian king there um it's housed the uh the royal Galia, for instance, and uh, resisted siege by Cromwell, snuck out the royal jewels. Uh, jewels sorry, uh, snuck out the royal jewels um, from the cliffs. Um, so it's a really jaw-dropping sight, uh, combined with sort of flashpoints from just about every relevant period of Scottish history. Um, and I think that really is your answer for why visit a castle when you come to Scotland as well. It's a fantastic way to come to grips with the epic story of Scotland to really feel as though you're in a place with deep historical significance uh, to have uh, a real connection to the past. Um, and I think a lot of people when they're coming to Scotland are, are striving for that. And in my mind, at least you uh, can hardly do better than going to a castle. My thanks to my guest and my new friend, David Weinsock, AKA the Castle Hunter. As we mentioned in our conversation, if you're in Edinburgh on 24 May, you may wish to take in his lecture on Scottish inspirations in the Game of Thrones universe. You'll find a link with details in our show notes on the website under the tartansky.scot. Likewise, there will be other helpful links with more about Scottish castles. In the very near future, David hopes to launch his own website, castlehunter.scot, where there will be an image gallery and an ongoing blog. Meantime, you can find him on Twitter, Periscope, and Instagram. In the coming weeks, we'll talk bespoke tartan design and the historic role of women innkeepers in Scotland. And next time, we'll be out and about across Scotland by bicycle with my guest, The Cycling Scott. Remember, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. And if you enjoy what you hear, a wee review is always deeply appreciated. Until next time, I'm Glenn Moyer. Tapale Bagus Alapagabra. Under the Tartan Sky is a production of Glen L. Moyer Creative Communications. For show notes and more information on this and all Under the Tartan Sky episodes, please visit our website at www.underthetartansky.scot. And while you're there, check out our online shop where you can buy exclusive Under the Tartan Sky logo apparel and other items. Have an idea for a future episode? Well, get in touch via email at info at underthetartansky.scot. Visit and like our page on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our username is at underscore tartansky. That's the underscore symbol, tartansky. And thank you for listening. <laughs>